joy of hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. Bow our heads together. A few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity this evening that we can gather together to study your word. Father, we pray that we would have the objectivity to respond to the Holy Spirit as he teaches us and reveals to each one of us how we need to apply these truths in our lives. Father, help us to understand these things that we might have a greater appreciation for your strength, for your power, and for the reality of spiritual warfare that is going on all around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A couple of announcements. First of all, don't forget we have the uh, tracks the night before Christmas. These are great things to put in Christmas cards or pass around at this time of year. Also, at one time, we were going to postpone next Wednesday night to Thursday night, and that has been scratched. Next Wednesday night will be on Wednesday night. Okay, Bible class next week as scheduled, unless for some reason um, I don't make the flight. So be prepared. Open your Bibles with me this evening to James. We will just be there briefly. James chapter 4, to remind ourselves of where we are in our study of James. James 4, 7 through 10 is four verses, ten imperatives in the Greek, and outlines much that is necessary for the spiritual life. Remember the problem with the congregation that James is addressing is that they were involved in excessive and continuous carnality. This is evidenced by the fighting, the quarreling, the uh, giving giving vent to their lusts. All kinds of congregational problems erupted as a result of that. And the root problem was that they were friends with the world. They were failing in spiritual warfare. They had an affinity and an attraction to the cosmic system. And James warns them back in verse 4, You adulteresses, that is, unfaithful believers, do you not know that friendship with the world, the cosmic system, is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are only two ways to think about things. Now, in today's world, we're often told as believers that we're awfully uh, dogmatic, that we're narrow-minded, that we're bigoted. Whenever we say there's only two ways to look at things, there's God's ways described in the Scriptures, or there's not really a hundred or a thousand other ways. There's just human viewpoint. They all have... One thing in common, and that is that man seeks to define reality and to run his life on the basis of his own concepts, his own ideas, and his own authority. 
The result of that is always destructive to individual lives and destructive to a culture. James gives us the uh, cure beginning in verse 7. It starts with authority orientation to God. This is the mental attitude shift that takes place almost simultaneous with confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. It is a recognition that we need to return to the authority of God. The command is to submit, therefore, to God, come back under divine authority, and the Greek adds the word, and resist the devil. These are connected, because whenever we are, as believers, operating in the cosmic system, remember the cosmic system is Satan's orderly, systematic, cohesive plan, policy, and purpose for making everything on planet Earth work to demonstrate that he can run things. Now, the fact that there's violence and criminality, the fact that there is famine and all sorts of other problems on the Earth, just shows that he is not up to the task. But the cosmic system, from the Greek cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, the cosmic system, Whenever we are out of fellowship, whenever we commit sin, we're outside the bottom circle operating on the sin nature, the sin nature has an affinity to the cosmic system. And whenever we are out of fellowship, we are operating as friends of the cosmic system. If we're not in fellowship, then we're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a friend of God when you're out of fellowship in carnality. Therefore, when you are in carnality, you are operationally a friend of the world and therefore an enemy of God. And the only way to recover is through 1 John 1, 9. Uh, I want to remind you back in James chapter 3, we studied that this wisdom, that is human viewpoint wisdom in James 3.15, is not that which comes down from above, that is divine wisdom, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. That tells us that everything we think in this life is related to the angelic conflict. There is no thought. That's why over in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that we are to bring every thought captive. Notice he doesn't say every deed. He doesn't say every overt action. He says we're to bring every thought captive to Christ because the spiritual life begins in our thinking. And we have to first learn to think about things as God thinks about things. And unfortunately, and it's sad, but most people want to put the cart before the horse and clean up the external behavior instead of the way they think. And they never learn to think biblically. So we have to make sure that we can think about everything in God's creation from a biblical viewpoint. Now, when we come to verse 7 of chapter 4, and it says to resist the devil, that is a command based on the word histemi. Histemi in the Greek is a word that is used, H-I-S-T-E-M-I. It's a word that is used to relate defensive action. This is not an offensive term. It's not go out and, re- and rebuke the devil. It's not go out and bind the devil. It's not go out and engage the devil or demons in personal combat, which is what usually takes place 
in modern settings and goes under the term deliverance ministries. And there are many churches that practice such things, and they're confused about a lot of things, including what the Bible teaches about the activities of demons toward believers. So last time, the time before, we started a study of demon influence and demon possession. And just by way of review, we said point number one, demons can affect humans in three ways. Demon influence, demon uh, oppression, and demon possession. Now, the only biblical example I have uh, that I know of of demon oppression is that of King Saul in the Old Testament, and we will look at that in detail eventually. In point number two, we defined each term. Demon influence is the invasion of a person's soul by cosmic thinking. Demon influence is the influence of satanic thought in the life of the believer. And we have seen that whenever you are operating on human viewpoint thinking, that's described as earthly, natural, and demonic in James 3.15. And so even though it may be wonderful thoughts, even though it may be involved in some sort of altruistic endeavor, even though it may be very religious and very moral, the Scripture defines it as demonic. See, we want to think of demonic as something like Nazism or fascism or, or communism. But uh, all those religious people down at the um, First Methopresbyterian Church who are practicing good deeds and good works and reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for their sins are just as demonic as Adolf Hitler, Ayatollah Khomeini, or Saddam Hussein. So demon influence has to do with what you think. And when you're thinking in terms of human viewpoint, you have had your soul invaded by uh, cosmic thinking and doctrines of demons. Examples in the Bible are Ananias and Sapphira, Judas Iscariot, and Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demon possession, on the other hand, is the invasion and control of an unbeliever's body by a demon. Demon influence is the invasion of your mind with the thinking the doctrines of demons. Demon possession is the invasion and control of the body by a demon. Only unbelievers can be demon-possessed. Demon oppression, our third category, occurs when a person gets involved in extended carnality and under divine discipline is attacked by demons and the result can be depression, misery, unhappiness, but just because you're going through depression, misery, and unhappiness does not mean a demon is involved. And as a matter of fact, I made the point last time that in spiritual warfare we're faced with three enemies. Satan, the cosmic system, and the sin nature. No matter what the origination of the temptation might be, no matter where the origination of the problem, whether it is outside in terms of a of Satan or a demon specifically, or whether it just has to do with the world system, the cosmic system, or whether it has to do with your own sin nature, the solution is always the same. Submit to God. Stand firm on doctrine. The solution, so it doesn't matter. This is in contrast to deliverance-type teaching where they emphasize that you have to know the origination of the problem. You have to correctly diagnose whether or not you're being... Uh, oppressed by demons or whether or not you're being uh, chased by the devil in order to c- 
correctly solve the problem. Scriptures always teach that the spiritual life, the issue is positive. It's learn doctrine, metabolize doctrine, make it part of your thinking, and move forward. That's the solution. It doesn't matter how we're being attacked, as long as we're standing firm in our soul fortress, wearing the armor of God. Here's our soul fortress again. As long as we're standing firm in the soul fortress, utilizing our ten stress busters, confession to get back in fellowship, filling of the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the uh, fortress, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, personal sense of our eternal destiny, personal love for God the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, occupation with Christ, and inner happiness. As long as we are utilizing those ten stress busters which we have studied, we are in the fortress. That's our defensive posture. It doesn't matter what Satan is doing. It doesn't matter what demons are doing. Our sin nature, by virtue of the fact that we're inside the fortress, means our sin nature is not in control. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. So at that point, we have taken up a defensive position. So under the doctrine of demon influence and demon possession, we have our definitions. Point three, demon influence is either direct or indirect. Direct demon influence occurs when Satan or a demon directly influences a person by putting ideas into their thinking. This happened with Judas and with Ananias and Sapphira. Indirect demon influence occurs when doctrines of demons comes indirectly through the uh, thought systems of the world. 1 John 2.15 and James 3.15. Point four, the Greek cosmos refers to an orderly, cohesive system and organization with a purpose, policy, and structure of authority designed to subvert the thinking of the human race. This is called the doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. Notice, these, the kinds of thinking, when you look out into the world system and you see everything from idealism to Marxism to uh, postmodernism, rationalism, whatever the ism might be, it doesn't happen by chance. It is all plays a part in Satan's strategy to control human history. Point number five, Satan's strategy is to get the human race to think independently of Bible doctrine, independently of God, and to think man can solve his problems on his own, or at best, he can just help God. Point number six, in contrast to this, we have the horrible status of demon Possession. And that's where we are now. There are six key words we have to understand if we're going to understand what the Bible says about demon possession. And as you can see, we now have a new toy. One of our tapers was gracious enough to contribute a new projector for PowerPoint. So we have new whistles and bells that will probably distract me from what I'm teaching. <laughs> I hope it doesn't distract you from what you're learning, trying to figure all this out. The first key word is the Greek word daimonizomai. Somebody already pointed out that having learned how to decipher my scribble of Greek on the overhead, you now get to learn what Greek really looks like <laughs> in a printed text. Daimonizomai. Diamonizomai is the present passive participle form of the noun for demon, daimon or daimonion. As a present passive participle. Now, 
participle indicates a verbal adjective. A passive tense indicates that the subject is being acted upon by something else. So what happens is that you get several people, and I know of a professor who's been at Moody Bible Institute for at least 30 years, and another professor out at Biola in Southern California, who take the position that this is the primary word for understanding demon possession. And that since it's a passive participle, it just means to be acted upon by a demon. And what they want to say, and you will hear this over and over again, this has become a standard fare among evangelicals, and that is that there's no real biblical distinction between demon possession and demon influence. All you have is a very broad word, diamonizomai, which means to be acted upon by a demon, and they will translate it to be demonized. And it's this one word, they say, that covers everything from what we would call demon influence and demon possession. They make a fundamental error. It's called an etymological error, an etymological fallacy. And that is to determine word meaning simply by grammar or history alone. What determines, ultimately, what determines word meaning is usage. That's why if you read certain things in the dictionary and you see how terms change their meaning, it's because of the way it comes to be used. And we will see in our study specifically tonight in Luke chapter 8 that the description of a person who is said to be demonized, i.e. diamonizomai, that this person has had a demon inside them, inside their body. And the cure is for that demon to be cast out of the body. And you'll see these words used over and over again, out and in. And this is so important to understand the whole doctrine of demon possession and demon influence. Because the word that is normally translated demon possession, diamonizomai, is a general and vague term. So it is the other terms that give it specificity, that make it its meaning clear. I wanted I can't drive that point home enough. Because what's going to happen is we will see if those words are made to be vague, then this word is vague and we end up knowing nothing about what demon possession is. So diamonizomai it does not mean simply to be acted upon by a demon. That's why I have the question mark there. It doesn't mean simply to be demonized. It means to be demon-possessed. This word is used 13 times in the Gospels for demon possession. Matthew 4:24, Matthew 8:16, 28 and 33, Matthew 9:32, Matthew 12:22. Matthew 15:22, Mark 1:32, Mark 5:15, 16 and 18, and Luke 8:36. Did you get all that? I'll go over it one more time. Matthew 4:24, Matthew 8:16, 28 and 33. Matthew 9:32, Matthew 12:22, Matthew 15:22, Mark 1:32, Mark 5. 15, 16, and 18, Luke 8:36, and John 10:21. All these usages are in the Gospels. 
And by comparing the gospel accounts of these same instances, which we're going to do in a minute, we see that it is not an unclear word, meaning just a general act, but refers specifically to demon possession. The second word, second key word, is is a phrase, is the verb echo, which means to have, to hold, plus the noun daimon or daimonion. Two different forms of the word for demon. And it means simply to have a demon. Echo means to have, daimon a demon. To have a demon. This phrase is used eight times in the Gospels. It's used in Matthew 11.18. It's used in Luke 7.33 and 8.27. And it's used in John 7.20, 8.48 and 49. 8.48, 49.52, and in 10.20. Eight times. The Greek grammar conveys the idea that the subject, the subject of this phrase, the person who has, who is the subject of the verb, the verb is echo, the person who performs the action has a demon. So that is, the person is characterized by a demon indwelling them. The next phrase, the third key phrase or key word, is in numiti akatharta. This is the preposition in, meaning with, in this case, plus the dative of possession, with a spirit, and this is the adjective unclean, with an unclean spirit. This describes the nature of the demon possession. It's used in Mark 1.23. 123 and Mark 5.2. The fourth key word for understanding demon possession is ekbalo. Ekbalo. It is a compound word. The main verb here is balo. And the preposition ek means out of. And so it comes to mean to cast out, to throw out. Interesting, this is the same word. Some of these words are used of Jesus when he goes into the temple. He enters the temple, ace erkamai, and he casts out the money changers. He throws them out. So we see a very interesting picture there of of what Jesus does in demon possession. He casts out a demon. In order to cast a demon out of a person, the demon has to be in the person. I'm going to belabor that point. It's amazing how many people really don't seem to understand that. Our fifth key word is ex-erkamai. The ex preposition here is the same we just saw in ekbalo. It's from the preposition ek. The verb erkamai here, E-R-C-H-O-M-A-I, erkamai means to come or to go. When you have the preposition, the prefix X, it means to come out, to go out. So it comes to mean to exit, to leave, to go out, to come out. Rhetorical question. If the demon is supposed to come out or go out, where must it be first? In the body. Okay? 
So diamondizomai doesn't just mean something vague, acted upon by a demon. When Jesus casts the demon out, and he tells the demon to come out, diamondizomai now has precise meaning, doesn't it? It means there's a demon in someone or something. And then the fifth word, which is very important for understanding demon possession, eighth erkamai. Preposition E-I-S means in or into. It always indicates direction towards something. And then erkamai is the same root we just saw with ex erkamai, and it means to come or to go. So the compound word means to go into, to enter, to enter into, to move into. Now the thing that's important to learn about this is that when the demons come along and they are cast out of the, for example, the, the uh, Gadarene demoniac, it says in Luke 8.30 that many demons had entered him. Now, this is the verb, had entered. It's an aorist active indicative. Now, basic grammar. The subject of a verb in the Greek performs the action of the verb, just like in English. The subject in Greek is always in the nominative case. Always. That tells you what performs the action. I know this is basic. We're going to go over it again Sunday morning. People miss this. It's amazing. The demons perform the action of entry. Ace erkamai. The reason ace erkamai is important is because diamondizomai is a vague term. If that's all we had, then somebody could say, yes, it just means to be acted upon by a demon. But when you have words in a demon possession narrative that have this kind of specificity going into and coming out of, the reason we can say that diamondizomai means demon possession is because of these words. If you don't have these kinds of words, or they don't mean this, we don't know what demon possession is you'll understand the significance of that eventually. Now, ace erkamai. If you go back and look at its meaning in the classical Greek, that was the language that was used in Greece from Homer on in 5th century B.C. It was used to describe a party or parties who would enter into a contract, a treaty, and it indicates that they are moving from outside this agreement, this obligation, to inside the agreement. Before the treaty, they were not bound by it. They were outside. So they entered into an agreement. We use the word entry in the same way today. Second way it was used, Xenophon used it to describe commercial transactions. Money that was going from one person's account into another person's account. Notice, it always has this movement idea. It goes from outside the account to inside the account. Third, it was used in drama to describe the action of the chorus, moving from offstage to onstage. Notice, it's movement from outside to inside. Plato used it this way, as did Xenophon. This developed a metaphorical or figurative use. The idea is of entrance used to convey the entry of a thought into the mind, a character quality into the soul, such as 
courage entered his heart. Or an entry of a new emotion, anger entered his mind. So the conclusion is, the thought, the quality, or the emotion is always the subject of the verb. Now, I want, you, I want to repeat that again. When you have this verb, acerchomai, and it's used metaphorically to describe an emotion, the emotion is what is in the nominative case. Anger entered into his heart. Courage entered into his heart. Those words would be in the nominative case indicating they are the subject performing the action. Now let's look at a passage. We're going to do some interesting Bible study for you advanced students this evening. Turn to, we're going to compare the synoptics. But you, don't, you can't spread three Bibles out on your desk and look at three different passages and that's too difficult for us. So I've tried to summarize this on the projector. We will look at the central passage on this and then compare the other two accounts. Turn to Luke 8, 26 to 33. Luke 8, 26 to 33. And we will see the episode of the Gadarene or the Gerasene demoniac and compare it to the account in Matthew 8, 28 to 32 and the account in Mark 5, 1 to 13. Those are the three passages that describe this account. And there are some very interesting differences in these accounts. First thing we read in verse 26, And they, that is the disciples, they've been out on the water. They've been involved in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And they cross to the opposite side. The, the area of Gerasa was on the southeast side of Galilee and was an area dominated primarily by Gentiles. The, the towns along there were uh, uh, populated by Gentiles more than they were Jews. So we're told in verse 26, when they sailed to the, op- to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, and when he, that is Jesus, had come out onto the land, he was met by a certain man from the city who was possessed with demons. And the phrase that we have here is the one we, the second one we referred to either earlier, echo daimona, to have a demon. It's translated possessed, that's the idea, but in the Greek it's he had demons. And who had not put any on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. So he's been ostracized from his community. And we'll learn several other things about him. Now, if you look at the Matthew passage, it talks about the country as the Gadarenes. Gadara was one of the towns. Gerasa is the region. So that's why there's a distinction in the account. Apparently, there were two men that came. Matthew focuses on both men, whereas Mark and Luke only focus on one man. You know, often you'll see little differences like that in the, in the accounts. And there are easy explanations for this. It could, it's possible it could have even happened on a different occasion. But whether one or two men, they're both correct. Because Luke and Mark don't say there was only one man. They just focus on one man. In Matthew, instead of saying he has a demon, echo daimona, he says he was demon-possessed daimonizomai. So there we learn, by the comparison of the two accounts, the daimonizomai and echo daimon are synonymous. 
That's the important thing. We're, getting, we're learning what diamondizomai means. In Mark, we're told that it was the region of the Gerasenes. He focuses on one man only and uses the third phrase we looked at earlier, in numiti akatharta, an unclean spirit. So it's described, each account uses a different term to describe demon possession. Now Luke goes on to tell us that this guy, they were unable to bind him with chains, that he was naked, he was without any clothes, he lived in the tombs, and he was, was violent. This is found down in verse 29. For he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would burst his fetters and be driven by the demon into the desert. So he exhibits supernatural strength. Now, Matthew only mentions the fact that these two, two men lived among the tombs and that they were violent. Mark adds even more details. He, as well as Luke, suggests that he was un, they were unable to bind him. Mark and Matthew both leave out the idea of nakedness. All three mention that he lived in the tombs. All three mention that there was violence. And Mark adds that he was, would run around screaming and gashing himself with stones. So obviously out of control that in demon possession, the demon indwells the body and manages to override individual volitional control of bodily functions. Now the person is still there and can still exercise positive volition toward the gospel. But that's the only thing they can do. They can't control their bodily functions. They can't. There, there's one episode where it's a young boy and he continually throws, the demon throws him into the fire. So they, they can't control their life. They're at, they've lost volitional control because ultimately to get into demon possession, you make a series of decisions and so, uh, culminating in volitional surrender to the demon. But that doesn't mean your personality is obliterated and it doesn't mean you can't be positive to the gospel because that's the only solution. Now in Luke, Luke tells us that when Jesus comes up to the demon-possessed man, the demon cries out. This is an engostromuthos demon. Engostromuthos is the Greek term for, a, for an old demon in the Hebrew, which is a demon that takes over the vocal cords of the person possessed. So this demon takes over the vocal cords and screams out, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He uses the whole title there. He knows who Jesus is, knows He's the second person of the Trinity. Do not torment me. In other words, He's thinking that this is the... The demons didn't know what any, all that God was doing at the first advent, and they thought that it was now time for them to be cast and bound with Satan uh, in, the, in the pit, bottomless pit. But it's not time yet. But this is recorded in each account. They each say, ask the same question, what is it to you? Are you here to torment us? Now, if we continue to look at Luke, how does Jesus address the man? He asks him a question. He says, what's your name? The demon responds, legion, because there are so many of us. So more than one demon can indwell someone. Maybe hundreds were inside this particular person because their demons have an immaterial body. They are not spatially restricted. So many demons, notice what it says. 
many demons had entered him. Ace Erkamai. They went into him. And they were entreating him, Jesus, not to command them to depart into the abyss. And so we see down in verse uh, 33, uh, or Jesus commands them. Let's go back up. Where was that? Jesus says to come out. Back in verse uh, 29. He had been commanding the unclean spirit to what? To come out. Ex erkamai. These are very important terms. Come out. And that was addressed to the unclean spirits. In Matthew, they, remember Matthew said the person was diamonizomai, demon-possessed. In verse 31, they are addressed not as unclean spirits, but as demons. Again, Jesus is going to cast them out. And there we have the word ekbalo, to throw out or to cast out. And the demons request, send us into the pigs. And there they use the word apostello, which means to send. It's the same word for apostolos, to send out. And the preposition ace, right here, E-I-S, means into. Now, in Mark... Mark says, send us into, and he uses a different word. He uses this word, pimpo, instead of this word, apostello. So there's a variation, but it means the same thing. Here they request, Jesus, send us into the swine. Now, verse 30 tells us the demons had entered into the man, ace erkamai. They wanted to go into the swine, and there they use the word ace erkamai. They wanted to come out of the, they came out of the man. This is down in verse 32. There was a feed, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons entreated him to permit them to what? To enter the swine, to go into Ace Erkamai, to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. Notice, demons can't operate independent of the sovereign permissive will of God. We'll get into that next time probably when we look at Job. But no demon or Satan can do anything in human history apart from divine permission. They are not independent of God. So Jesus gave them permission. And in verse 33 it says, The demons came out, ex erkamai, and entered the swine, ace erkamai, and the pigs ran down the hill and into the lake and drowned. In the Matthew account, the same terminology is used. They came out ex erkamai and they went into the pigs. And here we have the word, it's op erkamai, another form, op erkamai ace, which means to go into. Now, I have belabored this point because we live in an age today of mysticism. And people are running around, in fact, uh, writing all kinds of books and teaching all kinds of things about demonism and demon possession and frankly scaring a lot of Christians that they can be demon-possessed. And the reason that they have problems with various sins in their lives is because they are being plagued by some demon, some spirit. They have a spirit of anger or bitterness or abuse or drug abuse or whatever it might be. The blame is placed on demons. It's, you know, Flip Wilson said it best. The devil made me do it. 
And that's exactly what they're doing. They're shifting responsibility away from themselves. And very few people are taking the time to do detailed Bible study. This is what it takes to find out what the Scripture means. You have to sit down. You have to compare passages. You have to do word studies, etymological studies. And then you have to look at these words, how they're used. I went back and looked at Ace Erkamai, for example, and went through about 50 different examples of how this word was used throughout classical Greek literature. Looking it up in all the various uh, dictionaries, plus looking up all of the sources there in order to determine how these words were used and what they meant in everyday, everyday language. Well, we're done with our slideshow. Now, it's going to take a while to get used to using all these machines. In contrast to this, the idea of demon possession. Demon possession means to go into... When, a de- when you're relieved of a demon, the demon is cast out. This is contrasted to an episode in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. This involves King Saul. Now, to remind you, it's been a it may have been a while since you were in Samuel. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul partially obeyed the Lord. He was told to completely destroy the Amalekites in battle and kill all of them, including their, their wives, their children, and their cattle. And he failed to do that. He decided that he would spare the king Agag and the best of the sheep, and used some of that for himself. Samuel told him that because of his disobedience, the kingship would be taken away from him. And this was the beginning of Saul's fall into disobedience and carnality. By the time you get down to chapter 16, God has already had Samuel anoint Saul's replacement David. And Saul is now in under extreme divine discipline. In 1 Samuel 16:14, we read, Now the Spirit of the Lord, this is the Holy Spirit, who was upon Saul under the concept of endowment in the Old Testament, where the Holy Spirit gave the kings and priests and other leaders in the Old Testament the ability to uh, conduct their office and to lead the nation. The Holy Spirit leaves Saul. It was only a temporary endowment. Until now, the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Now, that raises some interesting questions in the minds of many different people. But this shows us the sovereignty of God over the demons. I want you to turn with me. Hold your place there, because we'll come back. 
And I want to point out a very interesting and challenging passage in 1 Kings chapter 22. So hold your place in 1 Samuel 16 and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 22. This is several hundred years later in the history of Israel. It is in northern kingdom. It involves uh, both the king, king Ahab in the north and King Jehoshaphat in the south. And they've allied themselves together to do battle against the king of Aram. And the background of the first part of the chapter, they decide to call for a prophet to tell them whether or not the Lord is going to give them victory. Look down to verse 5. Ahab was a degenerate king. He was not a believer. He was married to Jezebel who brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom from her homeland, which was up in Tyre. In fact, her father was the high priest of the Baal religion in Tyre. Verse 5 of 1 Kings 22, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Jehoshaphat's a believer, and he wants to hear what the Lord has to say. So Ahab gathers everybody together, and they all answer the same way. They're a bunch of yes men. All the sycophants tell Ahab, Oh yes, the Lord will give you victory. Go up and, and do battle. But Jehoshaphat sees through them all, and in verse 7 asks, Isn't there a prophet from the Lord here? that we can inquire of him. And I just love the answer. Ahab says, yes, there's one guy, but I hate him. He, he never says anything good about me. Every time I ask him to prophesy, it's something bad, so I don't, I don't ever let him come around anymore. His name is Micaiah, the son of Imla. And Jehoshaphat said, okay, go call him. So they brought in Micaiah, and Micaiah, this must have a great sense of humor. And he says, when they bring Micaiah in, down in verse 14, Micaiah says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that will I speak. When he came to the king, the king asked him the question in verse 15. And in verse 16, oh, and he answers at the last part of verse 15, his answer is, Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. He's sarcastic. And Ahab sees right through it and says, How many times must I tell you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Quit lying like everybody else. He knows that a good word from Micaiah is not the truth. So Micaiah says in verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. So he sees the army scattered. The military leadership is killed. The kings are dead. And they're just wandering aimlessly. Of course, that proves Ahab's point. Verse 18, he says to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he wouldn't say anything good about me? And then he gives a warning. This is very interesting. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I'm in verse 19. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the host of heaven, that is, all the angels, fallen and elect, all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Verse 20. And the Lord said, Who, notice the question, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, and another one said that. And then a spirit, this is a demon, 
a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? And the demon responded, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then God said, You are to entice him and prevail. Go and do so. Now I can tell by the looks on your faces that most of you have never read this passage in your Bible before. It didn't come up in your devotional reading. (laughs) And now you are sitting there puzzled. What this is portraying is the sovereignty of God over the demon. It's one thing for us to say that they can't do anything without God's permission. Well, this tells us how that permission operates. In the Proverbs it says, God created the evil one for the day of wicked, for the day of judgment. And this shows us that nothing happens by pure random chance in God's universe. God is in control of every detail. Jesus Christ controls history And God will bring about everything to His glory eventually. And He utilizes Satan and his demons to bring about His purposes. And so in the same way, the Lord sends a demon as part of divine discipline upon Saul in 1 Samuel 16 to terrorize Saul. Verse 15, Saul's servant said, Behold, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about that when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. Now, we just looked at the passages in the New Testament that describe demon possession. In those passages... There's some very important prepositions. Those two important prepositions are in and out. Do we have either of those two prepositions in this passage? No, we don't. What we have is the preposition on. I have on a coat. I have inside of me my dinner. Don't confuse those two. They're very important terms. On is outside the body. In is inside the body. Saul is not demon-possessed. There is no demon inside of Saul. He is being acted upon from the outside by a demon with the result that it is affecting his mental state as he continues to deteriorate in reversionism. And notice the solution. The solution is not to cast a demon out of him, but to play music so that it soothes him And it relaxes him to counteract the effect of this oppression from the demon. Look down to verse 23. Incidentally, the Hebrew preposition here is the preposition al. A-al, and means to be on or upon. Now, if you come down to verse 23, it says, So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, and here we have the preposition ale, E-L. And this means to or toward. Notice, what are the prepositions that are important? In and out. 
What do we find here? On and to, not in and out. Saul is not demon-possessed. He is demon-oppressed. It came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. It would leave him. What we do not find in the Hebrew of any of these passages is this preposition, which is the letter bait, which is B, and a shava, which is usually transliterated like that. It's just sort of a glottal stop. But, and it means in or into. We don't find it. So the prepositions here tell us that Saul was not demon-possessed. That's a passage a lot of people will go to in order to say that, well, here's a believer, and he was a believer. We know he was a believer because the Holy Spirit came upon him when he was anointed back in uh, uh, earlier in 1 Samuel, and then later when he is at the very nadir of his uh, reversionism, and he finally hits rock bottom, and he goes to the witch of Endor, and the witch of Endor is enticed to call up Samuel, who has been dead for a number of years now. And so he gets involved in a little necromancy, and he's going to have a seance and call up the dead Samuel, and the dead Samuel appears. God overrode normal operating procedures. It was usually a fake-out job where the uh, witch conducting the seance would, would just cast her voice like a ventriloquist to the ground so that it would sound like the, the person was speaking from the grave. And instead, Samuel actually appeared and Saul saw Samuel. He recognized him. He knew it was Samuel. And you know what Samuel said to David? I mean, to Saul? He said, today, today, you and your sons will be with me. Now, since Samuel was a believer and in paradise, Old Testament paradise, Abraham's bosom, we know that if Saul was going to be with Samuel, that Saul must have been a believer. He was a believer, but he was not demon-possessed. So, that takes care of the only Old Testament example of demon-possessions. Can Christians be demon-possessed? No, they cannot, and that is an extended discussion. So, I don't want to get started on demon-possession of Christians this morning and the arguments for that or this evening. So, next Wednesday night... We'll start up with the question, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And then we'll go from there into the doctrine of the believer's spiritual armor. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the precision of your word that tells us exactly the way things are in the spiritual realm so that we are not left upon our own resources. We do not have to try to rely on experience or reason or our own fallible ways of interpretation to understand what goes on in the spiritual realm. We thank you for the protection we have as believers against the powers of darkness, and we thank you for the fact that we have the armor that you have provided for us to protect us at all times, and that the command to avoid becoming a victim in spiritual warfare is simply to resist the devil, and that is done by submitting to you. Pray that we'd be challenged by these things, that we can apply them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.